Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Welcome to another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design. Kevin, what's going on with you this week? How are you, sir? Walter, I, uh, I think I owe you an apology. <laughs> Why is that? You apologize too much. You have nothing to apologize for ever. Well, I, I realized that I fibbed to you. And uh, I said the last two podcast episodes that we did were a two-part series. And I decided I'm going to change that into a four-parter. So um, I was listening to myself. And well, I tell you what, Walter, as uh, someone who's been on the radio and podcasting for many years, do you listen to yourself? Or was that something you maybe did early in your career and you don't do it any longer? Yeah, it's definitely hard to listen to yourself. I would say I definitely do it less now, although it's always a good thing to do because you pick up on bad habits that you've fallen into and that you wouldn't catch when you're in the moment, but then you listen to it and go, oh my gosh, that's annoying. Or I could really shut up there for 15 minutes or, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's good to listen to yourself. It's a, in the industry, it's definitely a good thing to do. I've heard the saying that we're all our, we're our own worst critic. And uh, it's not uncommon that when we sign off from doing our conversations that I'll have a moment where I'm like, you sound stupid. Why'd you say that? <laughs> or, or something, uh, you know, where I'm just not as confident and maybe <laughs> my clarity in communicating. And uh, then I listen to myself and I'm like, you didn't sound as stupid as you initially thought. And so I guess that's an improvement. But In my but, sports broadcasting <laughs> days, I definitely had a few. There was, in fact, one game in particular I can think of where I thought, it was so bad, I should just quit. Like, I, I just, I need to get out of the industry. I'm just done. I'm never going to improve any better than this. This was my worst broadcast ever. I really didn't have my, you know, stuff together today. And in that particular broadcast, I got like four or five comments from people that were like, man, you did such a great job on that game yesterday. I just, man, you just, the way you painted the picture and built the excitement up, oh, it was just so good. And you're just like, all right, well, <laughs> I guess I'm go. being too harsh, you know. So I was listening to myself earlier on the podcast uh, part two for the uh, your investing process. And I'm like, hey, I set this up and I said I was going to talk about two things and I never got to the second thing. So um, <laughs> I kind of wrote the script for the content today um, and I didn't even know it. I thought through something else I think would complete the story a little bit more clearly for the listeners. So that's where we ended up today, me being my own worst critic and uh, listening back. But I think it's going to tell a more complete story. So we're going to extend to parts three and four over the next two episodes. All right. So parts one and two, we dove a lot into talking about what your investing process looks like, the building blocks of an investing process, kind of looking into some of the factors that go into the science that kind of determine and look at different you know, stock and bond options and then how that fits into the equation. We talked about the tech bubble and how that kind of plays into our minds as we shape things these days. You touched on kind of a, a lot of that history. We've been talking about the recipe and the ingredients of the investing process. So that's you've kind of given us this baseline through these first two episodes. Take us from there. Will do. So always makes sense to repeat rule number one. And rule number one is your financial plan is the purpose and the objective of your investment plan. So I never want to lose sight of that. You know, whether we're investing for, you know, this is the Retire Smarter podcast. So we're talking about retirement. And in this case, we're, you know, we're accumulating money for working careers and then we turn off the paycheck spigot. 
now all of our savings investments has to make up anything that we're not going to receive in a pension or social security or deferred compensation. So meeting those cash flows to go ahead and supplement our retirement income and to maintain our lifestyle and do the things that we want to do is the objective of every single investment plan. At least it should be. So that's where it starts. So I never want to lose sight of that. And I certainly don't anybody that's listening should, you know, write that down in Sharpie marker. But when you go beyond that, again, you kind of set it up pretty nicely about some of the things we talked about. We talked about a process, talked about some of the things to go into the process. And now one of the things I forgot to mention was we talked about asset allocation, which the analogy is, you know, that's the recipe and the underlying investments are the ingredients. And the science uh, shows that the recipe actually matters more than the ingredients in terms of the returns that you're going to receive from your investment portfolio over time. And uh, that's been documented in studies going back to about the mid 80s or so. One thing I I didn't say this, I'm going to take a quick aside here, but asset allocation is not stock picking. (laughs) So this study that I'm referencing, and it's called like the Brinson, Hood and B. Bauer study, I think I'll go from memory here, but it's somewhere around 1986 that was published in the Journal of Finance. And how you allocate your assets is going to explain more than 90% of the return that you're going to have over time from your portfolio. Stock picking was a factor, but it was actually a negative factor. So picking individual stocks actually subtracted from the total return that you're receiving from the asset allocation. So asset allocation is not stock picking. I didn't mention that in either of the prior parts. That is something that's very important to know. Uh, We had a gentleman that reached out to our office uh, last week and he said, you know, I don't like mutual funds. I want to pick stocks. I said, that's great. We don't do that. Can't help you out. So again, we kind of believe in that science-based approach and certainly diversification is a big healthy dose of that. When you think about asset allocation though, there are a few different types of asset allocation. And these were the three things that I said I would mention in part two and didn't. So I'll take care of that now. So the first type is, I would just call it static. So you can kind of say it's, you know, you set it and you kind of forget it. The only thing that you would probably do is, you know, you bring it back into target if it drifts too far from, you know, where you want to be. So simple example, say my asset allocation very simply is 50% stocks and 50% bonds. And I'm just going to roll with that. I'm not going to make changes to it. Oops, stocks have done pretty well over the last few years. Now maybe they're 60% in my portfolio and the bonds are 40 because the bonds haven't done nearly as well as the stocks. I'll go ahead and rebalance or bring things back to that 50-50 target that I set out. So this static allocation is something that I know a lot of people that do it. I have a friendly competitor just down the road that manages a few hundred million dollars. I don't think they've changed their portfolio allocations in probably 20 or 30 years. Um, It's just here, here you go. We're just going to kind of keep you disciplined, Mm -hmm. maybe do some financial planning. And there you have it. Personally, that's what we used to do. We've kind of evolved a little bit beyond that, but that's certainly a good starting point. I'll go to the other bookend now. So on one hand, we have static allocation, very passive, not a lot of trading, just really some rebalancing to bring things back to target. On the other end, and there's a big variance between these two, but I would call it you know market timing, lots of active trading. You're making bets on sectors, on asset classes or on countries. Maybe you're going from stocks you know, all the way to cash and getting out of the market and then trying to time it to get back in. It sounds great. Who wouldn't want to go ahead and only get the ups of the market and avoid the downs? But in practice, virtually it's impossible. I mean, the evidence, which we always refer to, is quite poor when it comes to market timing. And 
a lot of the listeners have probably have seen uh, different articles or maybe even seen something that I've written or spoken about. But when you look at some of the returns, if you start missing just like the 10 best days of the market over the course of, say, a year or 10 years, you really start losing a lot of the returns you know, from the market. The corollary to that is, well, what if I just missed the, you know, the 10 worst days? Well, that's great too. But again, kind of getting in and getting out really doesn't work that well. I wrote an article back in 2013 after a gentleman by the name of Martin Zweig had passed away. And uh, he was uh, he was actually from the Cleveland area, kind of in our backyard here in Northeast Ohio. He went on to be in New York City and he was very famous for calling the crash of 1987. And uh, Walter, I, I as I was listening to the prior podcast, I said I was going to start throwing you some fastballs rather than softballs to hit in terms of <laughs> questions. Uh, so I don't know if this is a fastball, but it may be a curve. I was born 19- in 1987. Yes. So I got the answer right, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, so <laughs> no, not quite. So, so not quite. So 1987, uh, Black Monday. How much did the stock market fall on Black Monday? Oh, man. Uh, 32%. No, that'd be a lot. That would be a lot in one day, right? Let's go 12% in one day. You know what? You know what they say? If you think back when you were in school, maybe studying for the SAT or the S- the ACT, they usually said in terms of test-taking strategy. <laughs> if you don't know the answer, guess, don't answer it. Best <laughs> guess, right? Uh, and it was literally, it was just a smidge below 30%. Whoa, hey. See? Something was yes. rattling around the old noggin up there. Yep. Too bad you changed your answer. Uh, you get no credit. That's right. Um, <laughs> so if you think about about that 30% in a day, a single day, just, I can't even fathom it. You know, you were just being born in 87. I was the, uh, the quarterback of my, uh, championship midget football team had long blonde flowing (laughs) hair. And, you know, here we are today and I I won't even go there because it'll quickly get depressing. I'm having trouble picturing the long blonde flowing hair. We may, we may need a picture (laughs) to correspond the uh, blog post of, uh, of this episode to approve that. (laughs) I, I, yeah, there's plenty of embarrassing collateral that's, uh, that I have out there. So, uh, I can certainly share some of that, but Martin Zweig, uh, his fund, um, you know, he was kind of prognosticating this. He was saying that, Hey, the market's like doomed to, to go down, go down a lot. I can't recall why he was was foretelling this, but he was managing a fund uh, that was, you know, pretty flexible in terms of its asset allocation. So he would follow this market timing approach, this tactical asset allocation approach. And he had more than 50% of the fund's money in cash on that day. And he only went down about 6%. So nobody likes to lose money, but uh, rest assured, uh, (laughs) losing 6% is obviously better than losing 30. So you know, what happened with Martin Zweig after that? Well, you know, hey, this guy can see into the future, right? He's the crystal ball. He is the he's the guy that can kind of save us from this falling knife or, you know, this big market decline. And, you know, guess what? I mean, he, of course, he, he got a lot of praise for that. It was written about it in the press. He received a lot of money coming into his fund after that. And he ran that fund for many, many decades uh, afterwards. Again, he passed in 2013. While he was very back in 1987, and he did quite well, only losing about 6%, whereas the stock market went down 30% that day. When you look at the return from his fund from the inception in October 86, all the way through the end of January of 2013, the return was just a little bit less than 6%. Over the same time period, however, the return for the S&P 500 was just a smidge under 10%. Hmm. So roughly six, roughly 10. 
it may not sound like a big difference, uh, you know, 4%, but when you're compounding that year in, year out over the numbers of years, frankly, I mean, you can't, this is one math problem I can't do in my head, but when you look at the entire growth of wealth, I mean, we're talking about, you know, several times over more money by just owning the S&P 500 compared to the very prescient, or at least once prescient, Martin's Wag Fund. Or even if you go ahead and say, hey, maybe it's not all stocks. You know, he was investing in different asset classes. Maybe he had a little bit less risk. So if you just blend, say, 70% of U.S. stocks and 30% in you know, aggregate U.S. bonds, the return for that mix, that 70-30 stock bond mix, was about 8%. So he still underperformed by 2% per year even though he got off to a great start. Again, the fund inception date was in 1986. And then he avoided the big decline, uh, you know, just a year later in 87 and October of 87. So he had quite a head start because of his prescient ability. But when you look at it over time, his long-term track record wasn't that good. And as a matter of fact, if you look at, uh, there's, I mean, I'm not trying to pick on him, um, but, you know, he's one of these really good examples, but there's many, many, many others that are out there. And in fact, there are many studies that are done um, by firms such as Morningstar. S&P is another one that does what they call an active passive scorecard. Uh, and we'll talk more about these active and passive sorts of investments in the next part of the sequence. In short, you know, as the name implies, passive is a little bit more of the set it and forget it. It's more of an index type approach. An active is basically using some sort of active strategy. It could be, you know, somewhat active, uh, where maybe they're not going from stocks to cash, but you know, maybe they're actively picking stocks or you know, increasing stocks within a certain range or what have you. There's a whole continuum between, say, set it and forget it, and very active tactical market timing sort of approach. But the results of all of these studies, whether from Morningstar or from S&P, is that the active managers in general do not meet or exceed the passive benchmarks. And again, Martin Zweig is one of these examples. There's many, many others, and we'll talk more about this in the next episode. So just a quick recap here. On one hand, you have, again, static asset allocation, kind of set and forget it. You know, Maybe that's, say, if you're you know, certain percentage in U.S. stocks, certain percentage in international, certain percentage in bonds. Um, you can keep going down with, you know, some different kind of slicing and dicing, growth stocks, value stocks, large stocks, small stocks. But really, you're just kind of rebalancing it back to target. You're not using any sort of forward-looking estimations or any sort of market timing, getting in or getting out to go ahead and drive that asset allocation. Then on the other hand, the much more active hand, you have this tactical asset allocation. And again, it could be very active, it could be somewhat active, but you're making these active bets on stocks, sectors, countries, you know, getting in, getting out of the market, all those sorts of things. And then thirdly, now this may be a softball, Walter, so I'll, uh, I'll let you try to redeem yourself here. Okay. So if you want to take a guess what the third one is, Oh no, the third uh, third type of asset allocation. Oh gosh, now this was uh, much more of a hardball. I'm trying to read your mind and see where you're going. And this will be one where I kick myself after I miss the answer. Uh, you said active versus passive, and then I said static, static, and I said tactical, tactical, static, tactical, and oh, I'm falling off the spot. You got me. All right. kick so, myself well, I kind of gave you the two bookends, and so you know, I guess uh, we'll, call, we'll call it the hybrid. Somebody... We'll call it the hybrid in the middle. <laughs> yes, I call it dynamic. It, it is dynamic. A okay, there you go. that's right. That was the it's magic kind of word. A bl- 
<laughs> yes, it's a blended approach. I call it dynamic asset allocation, but you could certainly argue that it's just a, a mixture of the two. So I view it as three distinct ones. I do think tactical, a lot of times when you're getting in and getting out of the market a lot, you know, going from like stock to cash or something like that, it's just, it's an incredibly different paradigm and, and one that's uh, just invokes a lot more risk in many, many ways. But when I think of dynamic uh, and what a lot of uh, financial researchers think of is rather than just using kind of past relationships of how you know, asset prices move uh, uh, together or in a dissimilar fashion, you know, stock versus bond relationships, big company versus small company, value versus growth, you know, things like that. You're actually going to look to make some sort of forecast about the future. And the way that I think of this is when you think of tactical, you know, typically it's more short term forecast, like literally getting in, getting out of the market. It could be over a matter of days or months. But when I think of dynamic, uh, extend the time horizon some, and it's more what I think of over an intermediate term, maybe a, a market cycle. So market cycle being, you know, in the entire ups and down and kind of back to where it was, if you will, or a business cycle, generally speaking, call it about five to 10 years. And so what the math shows behind this and some of the research is that when you use different ways to go ahead and value assets, uh, they perform terribly in the short term. And, you know, nothing really works that well in terms of short-term market timing. But if you can look at an asset, look at its relative value, say compared to itself and compared to other asset classes, generally speaking, if you favor the ones that are undervalued and own less of the ones that are overvalued, you're gonna do better over time. Uh, and over time is, you know, you're hoping that that's going to play out that way. Certainly things that are expensive can get more expensive and things that are cheap can get cheaper. But in general, the basic rule of investing is buy low and sell high. So if you're buying things that are low and uh, you have some margin of safety, then typically that will work out fairly well. It's not perfect. Nothing is. It's investing. Investing involves risk. But that dynamic approach, taking a look over more of a medium time frame, intermediate time frame, does have uh, a correlation, if you will, to making smarter investment decisions in terms of buying you know, less expensive assets that are likely to do better and avoiding some of the more expensive ones that have appreciated in price, but probably aren't going to do as well going forward. My sort of big takeaway, I know that the the comparison of the different styles here, the in different uh, processes that we're talking about is the, the central focus today, but I, I kind of keyed in on something with that particular story that you had about what was the Swiger? Martin Zweig. Zweig, Zweig. Zweiger, that's from a movie or something like that. Um, from his story is there's so much focus out there in the financial media about the next crash. It's everybody's question. Is it going to crash? When's the next crash going to be? It's going to decimate my portfolio. And and people who lived through 2008 certainly felt that impact of a big down market. And I'm not saying that it's not important to focus on that, but based on what you're talking about, that long-term performance and absorbing the hit of a market crash in the long term, it's really not as big of a deal maybe as it's made out to be. And, and is it getting undue focus from the media in many ways, the the worry that goes into the crashes and having the right plan to handle a crash? Based on your illustration from that story of 1987, it in the grand scheme of things over the long term, didn't end up you know, helping him beat just sort of the everyday sort of dynamic approach that you've lined out. 
Yeah, and that's what all the studies show. Um, you know, there's uh, something else that, uh, again, Morningstar, everybody's probably familiar with, a lot of mutual fund research, a lot of research on investor behavior. They do something that's called, you know, here's kind of the fund return, and then they look at what is called an investor return. So what are the returns that the investor actually receives? The fund reports returns as if, you know, you were invested consistently throughout the course of, say, a calendar year, and then you string multiple years together. And in effect, what we find and what studies find, Dalbar is another large study that finds the same thing, is that inevitably the fund returns are higher than the investor returns. Let me say that again. The fund returns are higher than the returns the investors actually receive. And on first glance, you may say, well, how's that possible? And then when you think about it for a minute, it comes down to, you know, this market timing is more of a tactical approach. You know, somebody's looking at it and saying, hey, you know, this fund, this Martin Zweig fund, looking at it in say the fall of 87 after, you know, he only lost 6% when the market went down 25, I'm going to go ahead and put my money in that fund because that guy's smart and he's going to make good decisions and he's going to save me from the next bear market. And that historically does not end up very well. Um, Dalbard does the same thing and shows that inevitably, you know, investors do worse than the investments that they buy because it's bad behavior, largely attributed to these timing decisions that, you know, that they're using to go ahead and, you know, sometimes they're trying to, it's all in good intent and purposes, but it just doesn't work that well. You know, if I go ahead and say, I listen to Walter's on the radio and I say, man, Walter would be a great co-host for the Retire Smarter podcast. Walter's ability his wit, his funniness, um, his knowledge of financial Don't forget terms, good looks. Able- Don't forget <laughs> <Yes>. good looks. <laughs> Very important in radio point. and I, podcasting. I'm giving you, I see your head growing. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, his ability is going to translate and it's going to come over and he's going to be a great co-host for me here. Or, you know, sports is another one. You bring in, uh, I mean, the Cleveland Browns bring in Odell Beckham Jr., who's a great wide receiver for New York Giants. Uh, so far, he's looking pretty gosh darn good for the Cleveland Browns. So his performance is persisting. But in the investment markets, it doesn't really work out that way. You know, just because somebody had good past performance does not mean that it's going to repeat. And in fact, uh, when you look at the advertisements in Money Magazine or online or whatever it may be. That, that's uh, the famous ad- saying, isn't it? Past performance doesn't uh, predict future results or whatever, something like you, that. You got it. They completely disclaim that. So where it works in so many other areas of our lives, you know, be it in the, the workplace or be it in sports, or there's some sort of testing that's done. Ultimately, it's just proven that it really does not work when it comes to investing. And you know, honestly, this is going to be a perfect way to go ahead and, and leave a carrot dangling because we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. I love it. And uh, I kind of feel like the mutual fund, you know, this mutual fund's done so well over the last X amount of years. And then they drop the, you know, past performance doesn't, you know, predict future results. It's kind of equivalent to the weight loss ad that's this person lost 75 pounds, this one 100, this one 150 pounds. And at the end of the ad or in the small print down below, results not typical. <laughs> sort, of the, yes. <laughs> sort of the same parallel there between those two. Uh, the other thing that sticks with me from today's episode, too, is that the, the recipe is more important than the ingredients, kind of like the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I think that kind of, uh, that really resonated with me today as well. It's about how those ingredients come together, more important than the ingredients themselves. 
And I think there's a lot of wisdom when you kind of appeal the layers back of, of that analogy and of that saying as well, based on what we've talked about. So there you go. Good Foundation as uh, part three of our series, our extended series now, two to four on this <laughs> on this series about your investing process breaks down. Come back, listen to the fourth part. Uh, if you're listening to this right after it releases, part number four will be essentially in uh, exactly two weeks from part three. Uh, so be sure to come back and listen to that episode. If you've got any questions for Kevin in the meantime about your financial life, your financial plan, want to run something by him, you can reach out. 855-TWD-PLAN is the number to call. That's 855-893-7526. He's got an office in Northeast Ohio, uh, in Akron, another one in Canfield as well. You can meet with uh, a member of the True Wealth Advising Team by clicking the Are We Right For You button on truewealthdesign.com and schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the team. Just go to truewealthdesign.com to do that, and we'll put links to that in the description of today's episode as well to make it easy for you to find. Kevin, appreciate the guidance and uh, good luck to the Browns, right? And uh, we'll talk to you next time around for part four and finish the conversation on your investing process. Maybe, I don't know, you might extend it to six parts. (laughs) We'll see, we'll see. Thank you, Walter. (laughs) We'll leave that with a cliffhanger. For Kevin Krosky, I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for taking some time out to join us. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you back for part four next time on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.